0: 1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text. Sometimes from a novel. I love Possessed. Sometimes from a movie. The Bride of Frankenstein. Sometimes from a song. Telstar, for example. Sometimes from the Bible. Perfect Love Casts Out Fear. Sometimes from a TV show. Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different. Something entertaining. Something even, well, blood transfusing. For more than three decades, I've been trying to think through the ethical dimension of human existence. Uh, That is to say, uh, I've uh, been uh, looking through the lens of classical uh, Protestant uh, Christianity uh, to understand the nature of the ethical transfer in human life between guilt and expiation and uh, bartering and the economics of guilt, and the kind of strategies and techniques that people use to fend off guilt or to assuage guilt or to satisfy guilt, also how guilt is imposed on people, especially with parents, children, but it goes with colleagues and bosses and students and sisters and brothers and friends and A million other forms that guilt and the attempt to get the great burden of guilt off the back of the human being as the beginning the famous beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. How can I be saved? How can I get this burden off my back? These kinds of questions, which are to look at life through the lens of the ethical, have meant a tremendous amount to me and continue to. At this point, I'm also looking at two other uh, aspects of, of just the life that I lead and the lives of people that I observe. And one is the whole question of perception how can we actually know what we appear to know? And is there any real way to objectively know anything? I'm very struck, by the way, the oil spill, which was regarded as something that. That would devastate the Gulf of Mexico and especially the coastal marshes and the states of Louisiana. And Mississippi and other states uh, would be permanently damaged by the oil um, through our grandchildren 's adult lives and It was so interesting the other day when all the news uh, uh, services were reporting uh, the disappearance of the oil where 's the oil gone? The oil seems to have uh, to have shrunk uh, back to one tenth of what it was just a few weeks ago and of course, everyone has a million explanations but the head of Plaquemine Parish was almost angry. He said, uh, he appeared to be saying, you know, what is it? I, I thought we had this huge uh, three-generational crisis here, and now I'm told that, that there's no oil out there at all. Now, that can be assessed in a million different ways, that kind of experience, but uh, there is a metaphysical dimension. Do we? Was there an oil spill? Or at least, was there an oil spill in any way that it was uh, told uh, to us? Uh, what was true about the oil spill? What actually... Happened and what are its implications, and all the anxieties and <clears throat> projections and possibility thinking that you come into when you think about a thing, and then you find out years later that what you thought was true wasn't even true. And in fact, at times you find out that the opposite was true of the very thing you thought was going on. So I'm also thinking about perception, and in addition to the ethical, which was uh, the project of many years, uh, going into the question of the of perception, and uh, finally, I do think a lot about attachment and how love, as an attachment, becomes this possessive force that James Gould Cousins wrote so movingly and insightfully about. When is love really love, and when it is, act- when is it actually simply an attachment uh, of me upon the loved object, uh, which has very little to do with anything like love as a completely disinterested love? Is rather a seizing, a possessing, a grabbing. A wanting and acquiring, a getting. And um, so the whole question of attachment versus, uh, if I may use this word, non-attachment without any cultural association, simply living uh, in life without attaching to various ideas and pictures and projections and conceptions, but actually seeing things as they are. Are you with me? I've been talking about the ethical dimension. I've more recently been thinking about the question of perception or epistemology, how do we know what we know, and also I have been thinking about attachment and to what extent is love and attachment, and is it possible to have a true love which is non-attached, which I believe is the kind of love that the rabbi Jesus of Nazareth uh, explained and showed, uh, especially at the end of his life. Now, however, it is very interesting that the ethical dimension and the great themes of grace, atonement, expiation, satisfaction, and relief These themes uh, came across recently in a uh, piece of theater and a movie that I want to bring to your attention today. The movie is called The Browning Version, and it came out in 1951, and it was based on a play a few years earlier in the London stage by the English playwright Terence Rattigan. Terence Rattigan had written a play about a uh, retiring um, and very tragic figure of a Latin master at an English boarding school, who uh, on the day uh, and before and the morning of his retirement is forced to re-examine his life in the middle of a of a kind of the cards of his life, the house of cards of his life are falling in, and he is forced to examine because of a gift. Because of a of an odd uh, specific uh, gift of grace that he receives from a student, he has a kind of breakdown and a, a, a death experience of of everything, that has the odd and paradoxical result of giving him a new courage and new strength, new manhood, I think it's fair to say, and finally a kind of resurrection that comes out of weakness and failure rather than out of mastery or domination or control. And I'm really going to therefore talk a little bit today about this movie based on a play called The Browning Version and uh, get back into some familiar themes that I'm close to but are never failing in their application to people. And I hope as you hear this discussion of a of an old and uh, very fine Film, you will begin to think a little bit about your own points of vulnerability in weakness through which grace and unmerited and, uh, in this case, uh, out of the blue uh, moments of kindness create a a collapsing ego into love, a collapsing ego into love. Now, the movie, uh, which uh, stars Michael Redgrave, and a number of other not-so-well-known English actors, was based, as I said, on a play by Terence Radican, a playwright to whom we shall return. Radican uh, became very famous in England and wrote many outstanding uh, plays that we will talk about, and later on became a Hollywood screenwriter, very highly paid in the 60s, and he wrote uh, movies like The VIPs and The Yellow Rolls-Royce, and um, uh, a number of other plays, including based on his own work, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, the musical version, which I happen to love, with Petula Clark and uh, Peter O'Toole. And uh, he became a great figure and then uh, uh, died of uh, cancer um, And uh, after a kind of exile into uh, Bermuda because he was uh, so uh, terribly hurt by the critics in mid-career who, in the same way that uh, James Gould Cousins, uh, was attacked and silenced. A group of critics right about the time of the angry young Man school of thought with John Osborne and... Uh, playwrights of that character, the sort of Ashcan school with social protest known as the angry young man school of thought in the early 60s. The critics who lauded those plays saw in Radigan a kind of uh, retro conservative uh, based on uh, the social class system of England Moors and neglected to see the very deep uh, parables of Relationship that underlay uh, Radigan's work. Uh, so he was uh, completely done in for about 10, 15 years, and even now is nowhere near as uh, well regarded or known as I believe he should be. But in any event, uh, this movie and play uh, will never be bettered. It's an almost perfect evocation of an almost perfect parable in realistic terms of. Uh, graceful, loving, uh, coming to the rescue in a, in, a, in a scenario that could actually happen uh, to a, a very uh, crooked, uh, that is to say, a, a bent reed. Now, what is happening, and I won't give you a long song and dance, but I'll talk about it a little bit to sort of bring it to the human being that that I am and that you are. Uh, Andrew Crocker Harris is a, a Greek master at an English boys' school. And he is regarded as the himmler of the lower fifth, that is to say, he is a uh, man who was once a classic scholar and an, a, a tremendously devoted scholar of ancient Greek who actually had translated himself uh, Aeschylus, or as they say in uh, the uh, old uh, uh, English uh, refined culture, Aeschylus. but none of it, we say Aeschylus, but Crocker Harris had translated as a young man at Oxford the Aeschylus <clears throat> into English verse, and it was quite good, but What happened to Crocker-Harris is that he um, married badly. He uh, married a woman whom he thought would give him a kind of rarefied uh, long-term relationship to talk about Plato, you know, and she was a normal woman who just wanted a relationship, and he can't provide that because he's very uh, introverted and in on himself and lives in his head and uh, rather uh, unable to really extend himself at all, let alone clearly it's expressed uh, in a psychosexual kind of way. So he's been a complete flop in the marriage and she uh in the meantime has been carrying on a relatively flagrant affair with a um chemistry master in the uh, upper fifth the that's the the fifth form in these schools would be what we call the 11th grade the junior year and uh she has ditched him for this uh Chemistry master, who's a nice guy, and uh, has they've had this affair, but it's it's well known in the in the little uh, blinkered community of the school that this is going on, and Crocker Harris the uh, uh, is regarded as a cuckold and a rather foolishly, and he's not a he's a uptight, utterly humorless, uh, cold-hearted, as many people say, almost a dead man as far as human feeling is concerned. Now, because he has a heart condition, he is having to retire from the school, and not only is involved in his going to a much uh, lesser quality school where his duties won't be so intense and he can kind of have his heart condition and survive, he's retiring, but the board has not given him a pension. Because he didn't stay quite long enough, he didn't stay 20 years, and he doesn't get a pension, so he's been defeated, and his wife is extremely angry that uh, she's got to move away uh, with this uh, feckless and uh, impotent uh, husband, as she sees it, away from her uh, lover, the uh, master uh, named Frank, the uh, who's 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 appears to be a, a relatively okay guy. We're going to learn about him, and uh, uh, she's having to move away without a pension to an awful place, and it's a terrible demotion from her, and she's really having a very hard time with it, and she hates her husband. Now, what uh, uh, has happened is that the um, Latin master has been translating Aeschylus with uh, his boys in the uh, upper uh, lower fifth. <clears throat> And uh, a student who's a little bit of a teacher's pet type, uh, his name is Taplow, and he desperately wants to be promoted to his junior year, what they call the upper fifth, and he's afraid that his performance is not going in class is not going to let that happen. So um, uh, Taplow uh, is constantly trying to ingratiate himself with the uh, teacher Crocker Harris, and it doesn't really work. Uh, Taplow is a lovely kid and actually quite dear and really uh, ingratiating. In some positive ways, but he has this slight kind of Uriah Heap wanting to wanting to um, flatter uh, his. Uh, uh, uh target to give him a promotion now uh crocker harris is uh, seating over he's going to be um going to a little dinner party in his honor at the headmaster's house and the headmaster is very glad to get him out finally although he does regard him as a scholar and a good disciplinarian and they're going to go to a dinner party with the wife and it happens the lover mr hunter frank hunter and uh Uh, He's packing up his office, his classroom, Crocker Harris, and um, it's an English prep school and you may say, golly, that's uh, that's something way out of my experience. That's decades ago in a whole other world. Well, you really don't need to worry about that because uh, what unfolds uh, is unfailingly universal because it's all about defeatedness. If you've been defeated, now let's look at defeatedness. Uh, You can be defeated in a marriage. You can be married to someone whom you love and wish would love you, but been defeated. She's not going to love you. No matter what you do, no matter how much you give, no matter what you say, no matter how many times you do this, that, and the other thing for her, it's not going to work. And uh, in this case, uh, Crocker Harris has given up. And his wife is going with another man. But because this is 1950s England, she's not going to divorce her husband. She's just going to make all sorts of ways to meet this other fella in their new but really awful demoted life. Now, um, the uh, play turns on Taplow, the young student coming into the study in his home of the teacher, Mr. Crocker Harris, and he says, I've come to say goodbye to you, Mr. Crocker Harris, and I I want you to have this. And he gives to the master the translation of Aeschylus by the English poet Robert Browning. Hence the name of the movie and the play by Terence Rattigan, The Browning Version. And uh, Crocker-Harris at first doesn't realize it's for him. He thinks it's just being shown him by the ingratiating student. And Taplow says, no, sir, it's for you. I got it for you. And uh, uh, he said, I hope the price isn't in it. And, and uh, it's, uh, it's very moving. This is the only moment of kindness... And compassion, but that's not quite the right word because the student doesn't have any idea how terrible we do, but not the student, how terrible Crocker Harris's domestic situation and professional one and health one has become. And the student gives him this uh, little uh, used copy of Robert Browning's uh, translation of the Agamemnon of Aeschylus, which has some significance because in that play you remember that Clytemnestra, the uh, witch of a queen, Uh, uh, murders her husband um, Agamemnon for the sake of Aegisthus, her lover. And it's a dreadful scenario and and a world-famous play. But this little gift is the equivalent of gold because it is heartfelt, as far as Crocker-Harris knows. It is perfect. It shows a tremendous understanding of what Crocker-Harris would like. And most importantly, it's the only token of love, generosity, kindness. That word is really the right word. It's the word that is used in the play that Crocker Harris has known for a very long time in a desert of uh, derelicted unbelovedness on the part of his wife and his students who regard him as a just impossible disciplinarian law figure. In the book... The young student Taplow has written in Greek that is pointed properly and marked and accented properly, I should say. It's accented, not pointed properly. And the translation of the passage that Taplow has selected for this gift to his departing um, Greek master says this, God from afar looks graciously upon a gentle master. These words are sufficient to completely undo the emotionally thwarted andrew crocker harris he weeps openly in front of a boy humiliates himself but he uncontrollably weeps and his whole emotional being you might say convulses him his what he has suppressed forever or at least for many many years particularly in his marriage his childless loveless intimacyless marriage Uh, and in the figure of kind of disciplinarian, but um, this figure of ridicule that he has become, who can't even get a pension from a grateful faculty, and he has to go take this horrible emotion in late middle years. He weeps, and he's shocked at the emotion that comes out. He apologizes profusely, but he just pours out of him. Taplow, of course, is too young to understand what is going on, and excuses himself, but at the same time, Frank Thomas... The uh, Actually, it's Frank Hunter is the name, played by a terrific English actor named Nigel Patrick. Frank Hunter, the lover and chemistry teacher, walks into the house. He understands what has happened, and he is very sympathetic. He sees with sympathy his, quote, rival, end of quote, uh, being demolished by his own long-suppressed tears, and uh, he tries to be sympathetic but he doesn't quite understand. At this moment the wife comes in, Millicent Crocker-Harris, who's an absolute witch and is portrayed terribly uh, by, uh, that is to say, with her, real, as a terror by the English actress Jean Kent. By the way, the movie was remade in 1994, I think, starring Albert Finney and Greta of uh, the movie with the same script by Terence Rattigan, but now in a much more color version with a lot more sex and more sort of uh, modern contemporary touches, it's very good and it's, it works and the wife is more sympathetic because although she's a witch she is touched actually by the complete dissolution at the end and recovered courage as we'll see of her husband but that does not take place here here it's more realistic, the wife can't stand her husband. She actually attempts to um, sabotage the gift from Taplow by telling her husband that she had heard Taplow mimicking his mannerisms um, recently, just that morning in another situation, in an attempt to sabotage and uh, destroy the gift that has meant so much to her husband, and she does so. Now, the Frank, the lover, sees what has happened, and he says, I will never see you again. He was able to understand the character of this woman whom he has loved, and uh, with tremendous uh, sincerity, he realizes that he has nothing to do with her and never wants her to see her again. He also, of course, at this point, feels tremendous shame and guilt at what he has done in this affair with uh, Andrew crocker Harris's wife, and he goes up and finds Crocker-Harris, preparing to, to dress formally for dinner, and he has it out with him, and he said, look, um, first, uh, I'm never going to see her again. Secondly, let me give you a word of advice. Leave your wife Leave your wife. And Crocker Harris uh, at that point talks a little bit about the birds and the bees and the facts of life and how he married her without a clue as to what the core element of marriage has to be for a sustaining long-lived marriage to really exist and be happy in any long way. And uh, Radigan, with tremendous discretion, is able to talk about sex in marriage uh, with uh, absolute truth and uh, almost overwhelming accuracy and accuracy. uh, sagacity without ever really saying it, although it's clearly said in its own 1950s way. Now, um, uh, Frank is now terribly, terribly moved by his own. He can't forgive himself. He realizes what he's really done. What he has done in having this affair with uh, Mrs. Crocker Harris is he has participated in a murder He has participated in a psychic emotional murder of a man who was already dying of heart disease because it has completely destroyed Crocker Harris's uh, sense of himself and confidence as a person and utterly wrecked the man's life. And uh, Frank is so upset by this, he confesses to the man. He, who actually, wouldn't you know, knew about it all the time. Crocker Harris knew about the affair that was going on under his nose and his wife didn't need to hide it. It was part of her tactic of humiliation and Frank is terribly upset by his own part in this and is humiliated and actually begs and asks for forgiveness and doesn't really receive it now that night they are all dressed formally for the sort of farewell dinner at the headmaster's house with the canon of the Church of England uh, uh, the chairman of the board is there and the wives of the various faculty and it's a, a very awkward situation and the headmaster is a, is a, not a good man he is very much uh, behind the lack of the pension the not giving the pension and he, he really can't stand Crocker Harrison would rather have him leave under cover of darkness and Wilfred Hyde White portrays it as a a venomous uh, and uh, convincing manner and um in a moment when Frank, again, now dressed formally, and Crocker-Harris are left alone, Crocker-Harris being played by Sir Michael Redgrave, Frank goes to him again and apologizes. And he's utterly sincere, and he says, look, he says, if you leave your wife, and I'm, not, I'm certainly never going to see her again. I've done my part, and I, I'm so sorry what I've done to you. He said, I want to help you. I'm going to look you up. I'm going to come and find you on the 12th of September. And Crocker Harris is very embarrassed. and He says, well, if you think you're going to, going to coax tears out from me like the young man's uh, Browning version of uh, Aeschylus's Agamemnon, you've got another thing coming. His pride is obviously in play here. But Frank convinces him, and they shake hands. And it is very clear that Frank, the teacher, who's been both humiliated himself, has asked forgiveness, is utterly contrite, and also has now a newfound sympathy and understanding of Crocker Harris's real uh, goodness, uh, which is underneath all this reserve. He's going to actively, concretely help him. Now, at this moment, um, three things are going to happen uh, which are going to show that uh, this man, having gone to the bottom, is going to actually uh, find a new life. Um, this is what I want you to think about as you're listening. Uh, what has happened here is that a man's life has collapsed, as many lives collapse. His marriage is in trouble. His career has gone down the tubes. His own personality was weakened and, and pretty weak to begin with and not much and, and a, a real problem. And uh, lovelessness, complete lovelessness. He's, he's run into a complete brick wall. Actually, the brick wall has fallen on him. And uh, he, was, he was, this uh, gift of the Browning version hit him at his weakest moment, but he, he was what today we call blindsided by it. He was surprised by this gift of this loving, uh, not really knowing what he was doing, partially wanting to butter him up, but nevertheless, all things be equal, relatively sincere, 16-year-old. And he's um Crocker Harris uh, the the torpedo got through the defenses the the uh, the, the death Star's uh, uh, place of uh, vulnerability. the tiny little opening was found, and Luke Skywalker got his thing in there. there The guy uh, is, is torpedoed in the one place, his lovelessness, where he is, his, he's been enfolded by disaster and, and mourning, and it worked, and he, 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 was, he was brought to himself. He has been brought to himself. And now, as always happens, we don't need to preach anything. We don't need to tell him what to do. We don't need to tell him how to live. We don't need to give him lifestyle. We don't need to tell him to read this or do that or talk to somebody. It all becomes, uh, the theological way would be saying is that the spirit now has its day. And the first thing Crocker Harris does is he tells his wife at the end of dinner, when he's alone briefly watching fireworks on the little balcony of the headmaster's house, he tells her he's not going to go with her. He's going to stay at the school for a week or two, uh, get his things together, and then go to his new job and not go with her. He says goodbye to her uh, decisively. So he is breaking with an impossible, destructive life. He is not going to go with her. Secondly, the morning after, as he is, uh, uh, she, she, she leaves. And she wants to, to say goodbye to him. She's, very, she's not ambivalent. She hates him. But she doesn't ever love her. Her lovers uh, left her and, and left her with a tremendous... Uh, uh, finally... And terminally, she's going alone into a dark night, uh, having actually earned it in in a real way and not shown any sign of sympathy or empathy or compassion on her husband nor anyone else. And uh, uh, she tries to sort of get a rise out of him as she leaves. She tries to get some kind of response, and he refuses to do it, which in the context of the play is very real. He has made a decision, and he stands by it. He's not going to be wooed back into a place of... uh, of uh, self-destruction again. So first he says goodbye to her the night before, then he refuses to go with her and will not even respond to her sort of presenting herself as if to say, well, you're going to change your mind now? Thirdly, he goes to the headmaster just before the prize day ceremony and because of a certain tradition in the school, he says, I'm not going to go along with that, uh, what you've asked me to do, headmaster. I'm going to give my speech at the end, which is my right as the master of the greatest seniority. And the uh, headmaster who wants to get him out of sight and mind as quickly as possible says, no, you can't do that. We've agreed. And uh, uh, Crocker Harris says, no, it is my right. I I have the legal right to be the last to give a speech. And so um, he's faced down his adversary, the headmaster. And then he stands up. This is his next breakthrough, and it is the decisive, climactic, and if I may say, the theologically most heartwarming and gut-wrenching moment in the entire Uh, Movie and play, although it was not in the play, Radigan wrote this final or penultimate scene for the movie, uh, having only hinted at it at the conclusion of the play. But it follows, and Radigan wrote this as Crocker Harris is giving the closing speech and being very chilly and Donish and sounding, talking about epigrams and his usual double negatives and all that. He stops, and he becomes obviously he. He, 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 something happens in him. It's beautifully portrayed. He, he, he has a kind of flash. Uh, he, he, he mops his brow and loosens his collar. And he turns uh, directly to all the students and the faculty and says, I have only three words to say. They're three short words, brevitas. They're words of brevity. I am sorry. And then he proceeds to say, I'm sorry for letting you all down. I've been a terrible teacher. I've lacked humanity, I've lacked compassion, and I am sorry. He then says, I'm sorry for having done you an injustice as a teacher because teaching, he says, is the highest profession known to man, he says, because to the teacher is granted the care of the young. And I have let you down on every front he apologizes to the entire student body and all the faculty and the board in this extremely formal setting breaking every conceivable normal sort of routine and ritual and the students are so undone by this by the way he's being sort of emotionally helped in his apology by Taplow who's very obviously touched as the editing shows and also by Frank the master who has really come to his senses also and uh the everyone is touched, and one of the students says to Taplow, "Do you think he meant what he just said?" And Taplow says, yeah, "Absolutely." And they all give him an ovation. The place comes alive. The headmaster is shocked, upset by this sudden outbreaking of emotion, and uh, uh, Crocker Harris. He, people respond to his penitence, which is so heartfelt and so out of character as he was, but is really the true man. That the place goes nuts. And it is extremely moving to see this affirmation. Now we're at the end, and uh, finally we know, we understand now that something has happened in the death, through the death of the marriage, the death of the career, and his heart disease. Through the death of the man, Crocker Harris has been able to withstand his wife and stick with his resolution, which in the context of the play is the right thing to do. Secondly, he has faced down the headmaster. Thirdly, he has said what is actually true about himself to all the students and everybody who was there. And uh, he has uh, given a kind of public confession that is not maudlin, that is utterly credible. And at the end, you see earlier, he'd not been telling Taplow whether he'd gotten his promotion to the next grade, to the junior year. And at the end, in a very loving and sweet and Crocker-Harris way, Crocker-Harris changes his, all his normal rituals and informs Taplow of his positive promo- promotion. And at that point, Taplow points out that in – he he shows him, he said, look, Mr. Crocker-Harris, you're holding your your, uh, translation of Aeschylus that you did all those years ago. I noticed that it wasn't finished. And uh, Crocker-Harris says, no, I didn't finish it. I never finished it. The implication being that now that he has died to his health, his uh, self-destructive and terribly uh, set-upon relationship – Primary relationship and uh, his uh, career and his sense of who he was, he's died to all of it, that he can now, as it were, finish his translation of the Agamemnon. And then we end a, uh, a movie that has had no music at all, except at the very beginning uh, on the credits, no music at all. We end with uh, a movement of Beethoven's symphony to say that he has, uh, a triumph has happened, a, a little tiny triumph. Radigan repeated this often. He often in his plays, one of the greatest of which is called Separate Tables, which was also made into a movie later on and won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor uh, by David Niven again. But Separate Tables, the second act of which is called Table Number Seven, uh, has a kind of moral battle of guilt-freed, of uh, penitence, expiation, hope, death in life, and therefore life now given to characters who are otherwise these sort of very upper-middle-class English uptight people, but at least by our standards. Uh, The same theme takes place in... uh, in separate tables, it takes place in oh, I can think of at least five Radigan plays where you find this, where through a uh, what appears to be a very um, a relatively small domestic situation, a great battle for human. Freedom and independence based upon death and resurrection, we talk about the death resurrection motif, you know, as opposed to the action consequence motif please the action consequence motif will get you nowhere but but uh, a disaster like uh, the eighteen years of uh, of um, failed teaching of Crocker Harrison the equally long number of years of failed marriage with Millicent uh, uh, action consequence will end up uh, nowhere maybe somewhere for a while but ultimately nowhere and the paradigm that we always talk about is is death resurrection and that paradigm is expressed as perfectly as you can possibly ever see it in the movie and in the play, the Browning version fortunately everybody The movie was one of the early releases in the Criterion collection that we say with hushed tones. uh, Where I'm seeing this today, Uh, there's currently a 50% sale of all these videos, and you can get this for $9.99, whereas it would be much more normally. And I think the sale's going to end, I think it actually ended yesterday. So you're out of luck. But I can tell you this, um, they're going to have another big one in November. But get the Browning version. Netflix it. You will be, uh, you will be very glad you did. I've never shown this to any group. I got originally this uh, movie through a student, a friend named David Browder, a wonderful intellectual, gifted young man who uh, was touched by this and sort of ran across it on a kind of affinity list in Netflix possibly or somewhere and immediately saw the quality of this and he then uh, referred it to our son John in the ministry in South Carolina, and John was utterly taken with this movie, showed it to some people, and he said to uh, his uh, his mom, my Mary and me, Dad, Mom, you've got to see this. You'll be really amazed. And we did, and uh, it's become one of our top five favorite movies, together of course with The Bride of Frankenstein and Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. One of these days I'll talk about the latter film in these talks on grace. But let's finish up to simply say to you that what I was attempting to convey here uh, was the uh, to go back again to that great theme which uh, has meant so much to me and I, I believe to many of you of forgiveness, uh, contrition, honesty, an accurate portrayal of oneself, and then the word, I'm sorry, and the tremendous reaction and positive response when it is sincerely meant that this draws both in the world and, of course, in the world of religion. A truer um, expression of this uh, could not be found, in my opinion, and that comes from the very gracious uh, pen of the English playwright. Terence Radican. Thank you very very much and God bless you.